This episode is a mic swap. It's a concept I came up with back in 2017 at the very start of Shareable. I thought, what if I shared the mic and let my guests become the host and I became the guest of my own show? This simple swap has allowed my guest hosts to take the conversation in unique and unexpected directions, producing some amazing one-of-a-kind conversations that I never could have planned. The concept is so good, in fact, that plenty of my podcaster friends have taken the idea for themselves. So, I hope you enjoy this episode of Mike Swap. This is Ed Thompson, CEO, founder of neurodiversity training company, Optimize, author of A Hidden Force, here with Jeff Gibbard. Now, you may know Jeff as a productivity expert, a leadership guru, an author, We've also had a great conversation about neurodiversity. Jeff's talked to me about his own neurodivergence, his passion for this area. Many of you have enjoyed any of his keynotes. You know that he talks about, in fact, we all have different brains. So I'm super excited today to ask Jeff some questions about this topic, about Jeff, your own experiences. Let me start by just tell me a bit about your brain as you understand it. How does your brain work? Yeah. Thanks for giving the opportunity to talk about this in in very explicit terms because I often talk about it. Um, I, I sort of talk around it. Uh, I mention it in passing as sort of like my middle name is Alan sort of thing. But um, so I have ADHD. I was uh, diagnosed with ADHD when I was maybe like 17, 18, 19. So I was a very early diagnosis and it was long before we had as much information out there as we do now. Um, so it was really just, I was a hyperactive kid. So they said, you know, we think you have ADHD, you have trouble staying still, you have trouble focusing, you seem bored in school, but you get really good grades and, uh, you know, cause you can pass the test, but you don't do homework. So like classic case. Right. Um, and it wasn't until my maybe late thirties, early forties, I'm 43 now where I began to suspect that maybe I'm also on the autism spectrum. And what really opened me up to that was a couple different things was, um, I started seeing a lot more content about the distinctions between symptoms or, or, um, patterns of behavior or, or, um, just things that occur to people who are autistic versus ADHD. And I began seeing that a lot of the things that I thought were characteristics of ADHD are really more when I, when I heard them described were really more, um, symptoms of autism. The other thing was I began to kind of see, um, some, uh, more positive depictions of people with autism in media and started to notice, some things about myself in some of those characters. So I began to get a little bit more clear about really what those distinctions are. So as far as how my brain works, um, I think what's interesting about being an autistic ADHD person is that there's a bit of a conflict between a need for order and routine and consistency and a need for novelty and an inability to sit with routine. So on the one hand, I have this desire to put everything in boxes and label those boxes and know where everything is and have it in order and color coordinated and whatever. And on the other hand, there's just giant piles of things that haven't been gone through or looked at in a while. So I've got object impermanence. I've got issues with time. Um, but the I think the way that I tend to characterize my brain in 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 a kind of in the most general of terms is that it's like a supercomputer with no RAM. So I can do some pretty amazing things and think very quickly through a very um, you know narrow grouping of different types of skills that I can apply this to. Um, but then I also have just absolutely no short-term memory. So I'll go into a meeting and come up with these amazing ideas. And if I have a meeting right after that, the hour after that original thing where I came up with the ideas, after I've had another meeting, I come back to it. I, I've almost forgotten almost everything. Um, so it's it's a challenging sort of thing because on the one hand, 
I can do some extraordinary things. And on the other hand, I'm so disabled by some very basic things. Um, so I, you know, there's a lot of conversation out there about, you know, neurodivergence and whether it's a superpower or a disability, is it offensive to call it one or the other? And I tend to think that everybody's experience is just different and they, it, it occurs to people differently. To me, I have both a superpower and a disability. And that's how I think about how my brain is. Um, and some of those disabilities are neurological, physical, whatever, and some of them are social. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think a lot of it's contextual as well. You know, and, and, and if you're in the right place, then uh, a facet of how your brain works can be allowed to be and celebrated as a superpower and in, the other, in another place. Uh, the flip side of the same trait is seen as an inherent challenge or at least experienced by you as as a barrier. Uh, yeah. So let, let's talk about collaboration, you know, being managed. Let, let's imagine here, let's imagine you and I uh, are joining a, a project team. So we have a we have a manager, there's there's six, seven of us, and we've got you know a few minutes just to tell others, right, here are kind of a few things you need to know about me to 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 tailor how you work with me to to get the best out of me. So you've kind of alluded to a couple there. I can, I'm kind of joining the dots and thinking, you know, let's make notes of all the great stuff that that Jeff comes up with. What, what would be your just kind of like quick nuggets of like, I'm Jeff, this is what you need to know. This is what I want from you to let me be the best Jeff that I can be. So I think if I was working with someone and I wanted to give them some sense of like how to best work with me, there's a, there's a couple of things that I would probably hit on. Um, I'd say the first is to understand how I process work, how I think about work um, is going to be one thing. And that's directly related to a second thing, which is about how I relate to time. So I'll start actually with the time piece because it, it relates to how I process work. For me, all time is now and not now. So I, I almost um, terminally exist in the present. Um, while I can conceive of past and future events, for me, they're all in a pancake stack that are all the same. So like five years ago is the same as five minutes ago in the sense that it's all just in the past and I'm present right here. And it's all like I just the distance between time does not really compute for me. So because of that, I tend to think about work in terms of now or not now. So if somebody wants to assign me work, I just need to know, do I need to work on that now? Because if it's not now, then it's not now, right? So like, don't tell me about a thing that's coming up next week. Tell me about a thing that's coming up next week if I need to do it now, but don't put it on my radar because I'm not going to remember it. I'm not going to, it's not going to be on my radar. So what the, the folks who work with me tend to do is they set aside time to work with me so that I can do a thing now during that period of time. So that, that's one really big thing. Um, the second thing that that fits into that with the time piece is that um, my relationship to time, aside from being now, not now, there's also some weird quirks that come along with the way that this processing unit works, which is that if I have a two-hour block of time, let's say, and there's a 15-minute appointment that needs to happen, there is a correct place to put that 15-minute appointment to make sure that that two hours isn't destroyed. So if you put that 15-minute appointment, let's say I have from two o'clock to four o'clock open. If you put that appointment at two o'clock, I'm going to do that 15-minute appointment, and then I'm going to launch into my task and be able to do my next thing. If you put that at three o'clock, it's going to destroy the entire two-hour block because I will not be able to start a task because I know that I have an appointment coming up in an hour, and I won't be able to actually initiate whatever thing I'm supposed to work on because I won't be able to sort out what's because I'm going to be worried about being late. I'm going to be worrying about missing it. Uh, likewise, if it's at the end, 
that's better than putting it in the middle, but it's still difficult because I still know in the future I have to stop. And I work best when think of it like a snowball rolling down a hill. The best thing you can do with me in terms of any sort of um, work that needs to be done is to tell me what needs to be done. Don't tell me how it needs to be done because I can figure that part out and then clear the runway. Just clear the runway, get everything out of my way and leave me alone and I will go do it. Now, I've also noticed that I work well um, in working with people. I work well by myself. I work well in working with one other person. And when I'm working in a group, I only work well, only, only, only work well when I'm leading the group. Brilliant answer. And I absolutely love the quote you just said, tell me how not, tell me what, not how, and clear the runway, which I think is just a great lesson for uh, leaders. And of course, there's process and sometimes process needs to be followed. But I think anywhere there's flexibility, just let people achieve stuff the way that works for them. And just, you know, we can all be measured on, right, okay, you want me to, you know, find five pens? All right, well, let me go and do it my way. And surprise, surprise, I'm going to do, I'm going to do a good job. So yeah, I, I, I really love that. Um, I want to wheel back to something you said earlier that uh, this is really important because, of course, the world is changing here and business uh, and us in, within business uh, fit within this kind of broader societal change around neurodiversity. And you talked about seeing some positive descriptions of autism that had an impact on you. Can you talk a little bit more about, about them and uh, what was the resonance there? Yeah. So um, there's a show on Netflix, and I, I think I mentioned this to you uh, at a point where we, we spoke in the past, um, but there's a show on Netflix called the extraordinary attorney woo. And it was, it kind of hit smack dab in the middle of like my kind of beginning to suspect that I was on the spectrum somewhere. And I noticed that here's this person, she had sensory issues, right? So like, that was a negative thing that like, there could be like loud noises or, or textures or lights that would cause discomfort. And that was like kind of like, a, oh, I see that. But I also noticed that she had an incredible memory. She had an ability to spot patterns. And I, the pattern recognition thing for me was a really big one because I used to think the pattern recognition thing was ADHD. And there is an element of ADHD that recognizes patterns. There's sort of like an ability to kind of like soft focus and see things like see, take in a lot of information very quickly. And that is part of it. But the, the craving for putting things in order I, I sense that there's like, I feel like there's a connection between the desire for things to be in order and a recognition of patterns, because when you see something that's out of place, you can't not see it, right? Like, so when I'm doing, so this is why I, I think I naturally gravitated towards strategy was because to me, strategy is just pattern recognition and asking good questions. So I ask good questions. I get answers. I recognize patterns. I tell people what I saw and they're like, wow, we never saw the connection between those things. For me, I think that that's an innate characteristic about the way my brain processes information is that I see patterns. Um, it also helps to, um, um, I, I do a lot with automation in our productivity work. So we do a lot of like setting up a lot of like if then statements. So we try to like remove people from a process that they do manually over and over. So we say, well, if you always do this and then that happens, and then we try to build an automation for that. So if you're familiar with the Rube Goldberg machine, like the marble that hits that and then it it shoots the arrow and then that does that, that's kind of how I tend to think about processes is that there's always a preceding event. And between both strategy and um, processes, I recognize that there are patterns and preceding and sequential events. And that's a thing that I attribute very much to having an autistic brain. There's an ability to do that thing. Um, 
there's a lot of other things and, and everybody's autistic experience is different. Um, there's some stuff around like math. I used to think I was really bad at math um, for a bit because I was really good at math. And then when I moved, they put me back in like normal classes. And then I thought I was really bad at math because they didn't put me in the the better class because I moved to a new school district and they were like, well, we're not going to do that. But then I found out later I was really good at math. <laughs> like I could do math in my head, but I couldn't do math the way that I needed to get the good grade type math. So anyway, I don't know if that's necessarily, but it, there is a connection there in, in a lot of cases. Yeah, I think it's such a shame in a way that, and I hope this changes with now we have you know, neurodivergent leaders in all fields talking about their experiences and their strengths. But of course, we don't really have that in history. And I think, you know, for somebody like me as a, as a son of two historians, history major, I think strategy, I think the military strategy. Um, and, and I think no doubt that many of the greatest military strategists of, of the past uh, were, were likely neurodivergent in, in some way. And actually, you look at, you know, the, the allied generals who won the war in the West, the main biographer of Patton insists that he was dyslexic. And one of the main biographers of Montgomery insists that he was autistic. And you see some of the, the pattern recognition, but also in Montgomery's case, the kind of the desire for order. You know, he would famously sort of come to a battlefield and say, right, it's a mess. Let's let's sort of get everything sorted so we're in the right place. You know, I think it's fascinating. We just, you know, we're probably, uh, you know, a, a hundred years or so away from just having all these examples of, you know, people with your sort of brain doing these wonderful things. And yet we just, we're just not appreciating them, you know, in that way. Well, an interesting that you uh, brought up there that um, the way I would characterize it, it's sort of like a strength from weakness, right? So like you mentioned the general would show up there and say, we need to organize this stuff. I tend to, um, I tend to want to organize things because clutter makes my brain not work, right? So when I'm in an environment where there's a lot of like piles of things or there's clutter or things aren't in an orderly way, I actually have a hard time doing almost anything. But when I'm in a nice, neat, minimalist, orderly space, I feel like I can breathe. Like I don't feel, so when I actually go to organize things or when I try to create, it's often like I'm like scratching an itch or a frustration that I like, I have to work this out because it's uncomfortable that the pattern doesn't work, like that the sequence is breaking, that something is malfunctioning. I have to fix it so that it works so that I can breathe. So there's almost, it's almost like a strength from a weakness, right? Because what, what's causing it is discomfort. I see something and it's, it's something's in the wrong place. So I got to fix it. I got to organize it. I got to make it right. But that works out being really valuable a lot of times to other people. Totally. What a, what a great strength of a consultant or a strategist being able to to, to look at a, a business situation or problem and just come in with that clarity that we've got to get that clarity. Fantastic. Yeah. Two actually, more- can I give one more quick example yeah. of that? Because you just made me think of it is uh, autistic people are often um, criticized or have trouble because they're very literal or they have a flat affect. And a lot of the time they have a lot of trauma growing up because they ask a clarifying question because they are trying to understand something literally that someone said figuratively. And they're asking questions to get a true understanding. So they're really trying to get at the nature of something so that they can be a part of it. So they're asking these questions. They're often you know, uh, dismissed as being a smart ass or something like that. But that skill set, even though, again, strength from weakness, if you don't understand a lot of autistic people are going to be more prone if they're in a safe environment to ask those follow-up questions to really get at it where a lot of people who don't have that same kind of like compulsion or fear of being misunderstood or fear of misunderstanding people, they won't ask. They'll assume that they should understand or they don't want to make waves 
by questioning to get clarity because that's often taken as a sign of insubordination or something. But if you have the right environment, someone will ask because they legitimately just don't understand. And that's a great way to create an environment where clarity reigns supreme. Yeah, a lot of the time that stuff gets shot down as well. And and I, and I think, I mean, one of the uh, phrases people use in, in the field, uh, same as your kind of strength and weakness, is this just idea of flip side strengths that with neurodivergence, these are... Uh, differences that have been pathologized they've been diagnosed based on negatives look at the name you know disorder and so on dyslexia you can't read and so on um and, and yet these are just different brain wirings with strengths that come from the same wiring that that can create the the, the challenge absolutely and i mean who doesn't want in a in a very real practical way uh people who can spot patterns people who can spot that how we're doing it isn't working and so on fantastic if that's actually allowed to to flourish so two more questions uh again we could talk about this all day what are some barriers you've experienced at work uh, in a world that up to this point has been at best patchily neuroinclusive oh my god this could be its own full episode to go through this. But, give me a couple of highlights. Um, so I'll give you a couple of highlights. I, I think the the big thing, and I often refer to myself as psychologically unemployable because I, I truly believe that I'm not fit to be employed anywhere for so many reasons. Um, you know, for one, I just, um, I, I'm not certain of this. It's not a diagnosis like official, but like reading up on it, I think I exhibit um, the profile of PDA, pathological demand avoidance or persistent demand for autonomy. That's not good in a hierarchical organization. So I don't take direction well. Um, I have to invite your direction, but I won't just like take it because you're higher in the org chart. Like if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. And I'm going to question you. So that didn't work well for me, um, which also there's an intersection between that and ODD, which is oppositional defi uh, defiance disorder, which I think that's what's called. And it's basically another one. It's like, you just don't respect authority, which I just, I really don't because you have to prove to me that I should listen to this thing. I, I don't believe in hierarchies. It just doesn't work for me. So like that's been like that problem. School, yeah, yeah it's been problematic for me my whole life. So like that was, you go to school, you go to college, you go everything. It's just always been, that's always been challenging. As far as like um, kind of some specific so specific things, that I've struggled with. I, I will say that um, time has always been an issue. So like, I'm not a morning person. Um, I, uh, my, my sleep circadian rhythms, I am, I'm uh, delayed by several hours. So like I'm a night owl. I don't do mornings. And no matter how many people have tried to like fix me or change me, like it just, it's just not how I work. I don't like mornings at all. So I always had trouble with getting places on time. So then there was that. And I didn't understand it because it was like, we spend the first hour doing nothing anyway. So what do you care? And I'm getting all my work done. So why, why, anyway, so that was always an issue. Work patterns. Uh, a lot of it, like I really, I can only work for myself and with my partners because we have an understanding of like how I need to work to be my best. And I tell my clients, I say, Hey, if you want to hire me, here's me, here's all my stuff. So you're either in or you're out on that, but like, I'm not changing. So I think I've had a lot of issues with, um, working styles, like being able to work in uninterrupted blocks or being able to, um, you know, just, just lean into my strengths. I think a lot of, uh, organizations do a really bad job about um, simultaneously leaning into people's strengths while also not making them feel awful about their weaknesses. And I think that that, that second part is the problem because I think we do an okay job generally of celebrating people's strengths because it benefits the organization or the team, right? Great. 
But where we tend to then make people feel badly is like, hey, you knocked it out of the park on that project, but you know, your email turnaround time hasn't been great. And it's like, well, like who cares? Like that's not what you should have hired me for. So I think where I've had a lot of issues is uh, around uh, a mismatch of expectations uh, and not necessarily clearly explaining what my strengths and weaknesses and boundaries are so that that was understood in the first place. Um, so I think that's where a lot of my issues have come in terms of specific things. Oh, and any office with fluorescent lights should just shut its doors and never, ever exist because fluorescent lights are the worst thing in the entire world. They're way too loud and they make my eyes burn and I hate them. Well, thank you for sharing all that. And as you say, we could we could talk more, I'm sure, about about those uh, yeah. those barriers. Last question. Um, look, we've had just in the last week some great conversations about this topic. There is an energy about this topic today that there wasn't before. Uh, you're part of that energy, which is great. What's the change you want to see in the world when it comes to this topic? I think the approach that I take with it is that I see neuroinclusion as a vehicle to a bigger conversation. It's it's something that I can be a part of. It's something that I can own my little piece of. But I think the very same principles that I'm trying to advocate for that create a better environment for uh, neurodivergent people, and that intersects with the work I do in leadership where I want to create a safer environment for everyone, I think those same principles are what I'm after is that I want a world in which the work that we do, the environments that we go into to do our work are ones in where we feel cared for, where we can trust one another, where we feel safe enough to be who we are, to be free to be the people that we are so that we can bring our unique gifts to work. And that is true, whether we're talking about neurodiversity, whether we're talking about neurodiversity and intersecting with other identities, whether we're talking about identities of neurotypical people, whether they be, you know, LGBTQ, whether they be people of color, whether they be, you know, any, any identity that someone has, we should be creating environments in which they are safe to be exactly who they are. And they can bring exactly who they are to work and do the things where they have uh, the strengths that they, that they want to contribute and have the safety to, to share their vulnerabilities. Um, and I think that capitalism doesn't do a great job of creating that. Um, but I think we're going to do the best with what we can for now. Um, so my the the impact I want to try and make is I want the conversations that I'm having about neurodiversity to spur bigger conversations and hopefully lead to uh, environments that are just safer, kinder, more equitable. Such a great answer. And I think you and you and I and, and, and we at Optimize are playing you know, different but such complementary roles in, in this field because I think your focus as a, of leadership, productivity, you know, more, more generally, you see what an important piece this is. And I think we sort of feel the same, but feel like we need to be the ones to, to really be there holding the torch, you know, on this topic to make sure it's part of those bigger conversations. But absolutely, I think, where does this all lead, we hope, through the belated inclusion efforts, because look, most people don't even know what this is. We've got to change that to, to, to stop somebody like you telling me, gosh, barriers, where do we start, right? I want to change yeah. that. But yeah. let's get to that future state where this is just about effective, empathetic collaboration, uh, leadership, and so on. I know that's what you're working uh, on, on, Jeff, and I, I appreciate that. And I think the way that you're bringing this topic into that work is fantastic this has been great uh, this is ed this is jeff really enjoyed uh, this conversation and undoubtedly this has been shareable so tell me 
What was most valuable or useful for you in this episode? Send me a message or hit me up on social media. I'm easy to find, but there's links in the show notes just to make it easy. Seriously, I'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple things you could do, starting with subscribing to the show. And after that, head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate the show five stars and leave a review. Consider sharing this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. Or just buy me a latte or an old-fashioned by hitting up that tip jar. If you're looking for a good book to read, may I suggest The Lovable Leader, which covers how to build great teams with trust, respect, and kindness. It's built exclusively for brand new managers, and it's a handbook that will serve you well in your journey of leadership. Just search for Lovable Leader wherever books are sold online. And finally, if you're interested in working with me or checking out any of my other projects, go to jgibbard.com. That link, as well as every other link mentioned, will be found in the show notes. Stay safe, be kind, and seriously, share this episode with someone. I'll see you on the next episode of Shareable. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm.